You are about to watch a debate about the real Jewish Messiah. I, my name is Yisrael Blumenthal, will be presenting the position of the Orthodox Jewish community. Dr. Brown will be presenting the position of those who believe in Jesus. This debate follows a unique format. The first two presentations are the opening presentations of myself and of Dr. Brown. They are both posted simultaneously on May 15th, 2017. June 19th, we each posted a rebuttal. And on July 24th, each one of us posted our closing statements and the response to the rebuttal. So even though you're going to be watching the videos consecutively, we have to realize that parts one of the first two videos are, were posted simultaneously. The second two videos, that means three and four, were posted simultaneously, and five and six were posted simultaneously. This debate has a history and a context. Between the years 2000 and 2010, Dr. Brown published a five-volume series entitled Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. In this series, he presented many arguments against Judaism and for Christianity. I responded with a string of publications of my own, Contra Brown in 2007, The Elephant in the Suit 2010, Supplement to Contra Brown 2011. Since I published my critique of Dr. Brown's arguments, Dr. Brown has been challenged to respond to my critique. And Dr. Brown's primary response to that challenge was that he wants to engage me in a live debate. I never understood that response because if he has answers to my critique, why wouldn't he share it in writing or in a video presentation of his own? But to meet Dr. Brown on his own terms, I offered the following compromise because I didn't want to engage in a live debate. I feel that it's not a forum for education. If I hear an argument, I need time to digest, to articulate my response to that argument. I can't just communicate effectively on the fly. I need time. That's how I work. So to meet Dr. Brown on his terms, we, I, offered the, I proposed the following compromise, the debate that you're about to watch. In order, if you're going to invest the time and the energy to watch this two-hour debate, I suggest that you maximize the educational impact of this debate by getting a flavor of the context. I would suggest that you read Contra Brown before you watch the following debate. Is my feeling, is my understanding that you will find this debate illuminating and educational. Let's discuss the Messiah. Before we get into the subject, let's first talk a little bit about why this topic draws people's hearts, attracts people's attention. In the second chapter of Isaiah, the prophet tells us, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift sword against nation. They shall learn war no more. The prophet is speaking about a glorious age of peace, brotherhood, harmony at the end of time. And this message has a universal appeal. People look forward to, they yearn for a time when there's no conflict, there's no fighting, there's no war, there's only peace. And the prophets associate a person, a righteous king, with this glorious age at the end of time. For example, in Isaiah chapter 11, it speaks about a righteous king ruling in a time when 
the knowledge of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. This righteous king came to be known as the Messiah. So when people speak about yearning for the Messiah, hoping for the Messiah, or the Messiah, they're speaking about this universal yearning, this hope for the glorious future of mankind. And the word Messiah came to represent that yearning that mankind has for a future of peace, a future without war. So what is the Bible? What is the Jewish Bible? When I say the Bible, I mean what Christians call the Old Testament. So what is the Jewish Bible? What does the Bible teach us about the Messiah? Well, let's word the question this way. What is it that the author of the Bible wants you to know about the Messiah, to know with confidence and with clarity? What pieces of information about the person of the Messiah does the author of the Bible want to make sure that you won't question? You know clearly this has to do with the Messiah. This, these are the qualities of the Messiah. Now, there are actually many details and many qualities that we could talk about. But I think there are two qualities. There are two qualities that I want to focus on over here. And as far as I am able to tell in all of my interactions with Jews, with Christians, with atheists, with any student of the Bible, these are two qualities that everyone acknowledges that the author of the Bible associated with the Messiah. And these two qualities are King of the Jews, sitting on the throne of David. These concepts, King of the Jews, the throne of David, are almost synonymous with the Messiah. As far as I could tell, no one ever disputed that these are personal qualities of the Messiah. King of the Jews, throne of David. Now, even though the prophets teach us that the Messiah will rule over all the nations, but it is clear from the prophets that first and foremost, the Messiah will be a king of the Jews. And many references in Scripture, Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 34, are two references. Look it up, read about it. So, I suggest that instead of trying to figure out details that are in question, disputable, let's focus on what the author of Scripture made abundantly clear. The Messiah is going to be a king of the Jews. He's going to sit on the throne of David. Let us try to absorb the full weight of these simple truths. What does it mean to be the king of the Jews? What does it mean to be the king of any nation? If someone were to tell you that you were chosen to be the king of a nation, you could think of the advantages of royalty, the privileges, the honor, the fame. But if you're a responsible, a moral, an ethical person, you will realize that if you're chosen to be the king of a nation, any nation, it's not about you, it's about the nation. It's not just a privilege, it's a responsibility. The responsibility of the king of any given nation is to lead the nation to its destiny. And the Messiah is no different. The responsibility of the Messiah, the role of the Messiah, is to lead his nation, the Jewish people, to its destiny. So if we understand the destiny of the Jewish people, we will understand one of the primary, one of the foundational teachings about the Messiah. When the Bible tells us that the Messiah is sitting on the throne of David, what the Bible is telling us is that the Messiah will not be operating in a vacuum. He will not come in to a blank page. He's going to be continuing something which began way back when. He's going to be continuing the legacy of his ancestor David. In fact, the entire concept of the Messiah is the fulfillment of a promise to King David. God promised to King David, and this promise is recorded several times throughout the Bible. Psalm 89 is one place where you could read about it. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is another place where you can read about it. God tells David, your throne, David, is going to be established before God forever. 
So if we understand the legacy of David, we understand what the throne of David stands for, that's another way of understanding what the Bible is teaching us about the Messiah. Because again, the two truths that the Bible makes very clear about the Messiah is that he is king of the Jews and that he is sitting on the throne of David. So let's start with the destiny of the Jewish people. What is the destiny of the Jewish people? Because again, as the king of the Jewish people, it's the Messiah's responsibility to lead Israel to her destiny. The destiny of the Jewish people begins with a promise to Abraham. In the book of Genesis, God promises to Abraham that God will make a great nation out of his children and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through that nation, through the children of Abraham. So this is the destiny of the Jewish people, to be a blessing to all the nations. This promise to Abraham is recorded in Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 22, and chapter 26. In the book of Exodus, we see how God brings this promise to fruition through the suffering in Egypt, through the miracles of the Exodus, the splitting of the Red Sea, the Sinai revelation, having God's trustworthy prophet, Moses, living amongst them and imparting God's teaching to them, the construction of the tabernacle, God's presence coming to dwell in the tabernacle, we see how God created and formed and forged a nation for himself. How is this nation now going to be a blessing to the nations of the earth in fulfillment to the promise to Abraham? Because again, that is the destiny of the Jewish people to be a blessing to the nations of the earth. Ideally, what is supposed to happen is that the Jewish people are supposed to be obedient to God, follow God's law, and they will experience God's blessing. God's temple will be in their midst, and that means that God will make His love for them open and manifest. The nations of the earth see God standing in the, see the Jewish people standing in this special relationship with God, and they see how Israel experiences the blessing of standing in a relationship with God, and they are inspired and uplifted, and they follow Israel's example. And in the Messianic age, this ideal will come to fruition. Isaiah chapter 60 describes how the light of God will shine upon Israel and all the nations will walk by that light. The verse that we quoted earlier in the book of Isaiah about the nations not lifting sword against nation, learning war no more, in chapter 2 in the book of Isaiah, it speaks of the teaching of God coming forth from the temple that's in Jerusalem, in Zion. In other words, the people of Israel with their temple stand in this beautiful relationship with God, the nations of the earth see the relationship, they see the blessing that's inherent in the relationship, and they are inspired to learn from it, to enter into their own relationship with God, to follow the message of God that's relevant to them, to practice justice, mercy, morality. That is the ideal. We tasted a bit of this ideal in the days of Solomon, in the days of Hezekiah, in the days of some of the righteous kings of the Davidic line. In the days of Solomon, we had a temple. And the purpose of the temple, like it says in 1 Kings chapter 8, was in order that the nations of the world know that there is no God but the God of Israel. And the nations of the earth that, that were around the land of Israel saw the blessing that Israel experienced and they learned from it. The miracles that God did for Hezekiah in the days of Hezekiah taught the nations around the land of Israel about the greatness of God. So in a miniature aspect, we experience this ideal in the days of Solomon, in the days of Hezekiah, in the days of some of the righteous kings. But throughout most of our history, 
we were disobedient, we sinned, and we did not live up to this ideal. And therefore, we experienced, sin, we experienced curse, we experienced dispersion, exile, and suffering. But even in our suffering, and even in our exile, we still play a part in God's plan for all of humanity, and we are still walking towards our destiny, towards that promise that God promised to Abraham. Because, you see, God promised that His truth will never depart from our midst. No matter how much we sin, no matter how much we stray, God will preserve His truth in our midst. This promise is recorded in many places throughout Scripture. Psalm 78 is one place that you can read about it, how God planted His testimony in Jacob. He established His teaching in Israel. And that will never depart from us. And in all the nations of our dispersion, wherever we walked, we carried the basic points of God's message. Did we live up to that message? No, not necessarily. But we still carried that truth with us. And many nations and many individuals from the nations benefited from learning about God's message through us. They learned about how all of humanity is equal before God, how God loves justice and mercy. And people were inspired to enter into a relationship with God, to improve their own relationship with God and to improve their relationship with their fellow man on the basis of the message that they absorbed from interacting with the Jewish people. But by and large, most people looked at us, they saw the message that we were carrying, they heard that message, a message about one God, about God desiring justice and mercy from simple human beings, from sinful human beings, and they looked at our message, they saw our suffering, they saw the curse that we were experiencing, and they came to the conclusion that the reason we are suffering and the reason we are experiencing exile and dispersion and curse is because our message is wrong. They didn't interpret our suffering as an indication that our behavior is off, that we are not being loyal to our message, but rather that we, our message is wrong. And throughout Scripture, we find that the nations taunt the Jewish people, where is your God? For example, in Micah chapter 7, our enemies taunt us, taunt us and say, where is your God? The prophet speaks on behalf of Israel and says, I bear the wrath of God. And our nations are saying, where is your God? In other words, our nations, the nations see how we're suffering and how we're not experiencing God's blessing. They see the message that we're carrying and they're telling us, if you guys are carrying the true message, why is God not with you? And God promises that ultimately what will happen is He will intervene into human history on our behalf. The arm of the Lord will be revealed upon those who are loyal to God's message, who are still carrying God's message. Again, it's not a vindication of our behavior, it's a vindication of our message. And the arm of the Lord, we know what the arm of the Lord is, it's very clear. In Isaiah chapter 51, the prophet directly talks to the arm of the Lord, and he describes the arm of the Lord as the one who brought Israel out of Egypt, crushed her enemies, brought Israel through the dry land, through the sea on dry land. So the arm of the Lord is when God's strength and might is manifest here in this world in open and obvious way on behalf of His people, crushing the enemies of His people, not the personal enemies of Israel, but rather those who stand in the way of Israel's message. So the arm of the Lord will be revealed in an open and obvious way over the people of Israel. And at that point, our message will be vindicated. And the people, the nations of the earth will see They'll see how those who hoped to God from their state of sin, from their state of imperfection, were vindicated. Not 
Again, not the behavior is never vindicated. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 39, when it describes our vindication, it says that when we're vindicated, the nations will know that it's because of our sin that we were exiled. In other words, not because our message was wrong, but because our behavior was wrong. But our message will be vindicated and the arm of the Lord will be revealed upon us. Isaiah chapter 52 speaks about this. Psalm 98 speaks about this. How all the ends of the earth earth, see the salvation of our Lord. They see the salvation of God and they see how the nation who hoped to God from their sin, from their imperfection, is vindicated. Again, it's the hope of Israel that will be vindicated. So even in our exile, we are still God's witnesses. We still serve God's purpose to bring the world to its destiny. What does all this have to do? What does all this have to do with the Messiah? What does it have to do with the throne of David? David, King David, in his lifetime, ruled over Israel in one of the ideal times. The temple wasn't actually built in David's times, but in this in the first book of Chronicles, chapter 28 and chapter 29, we learn how David prepared the materials for the temple, how God gave the architectural details of Solomon's temple to David through prophecy. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, we read how the place where Solomon built the temple was built on the place that David found. This is described vividly in Psalm 132. So David directed Israel towards its destiny in the ideal way, in the way of Israel experiencing an open and manifest relationship with God in a way that's open and obvious towards the people all around them. And David didn't just do this by preparing physical materials by preparing a place because the temple is not just a geographic building on a a geographical location the temple is an expression of Israel's love and obedience to God and that's where God comes to dwell so David guided Israel in obedience to God and loyalty to God and bring out the heart of Israel in love towards God but David's career didn't end with his death in the second book of Samuel chapter 23 the prophet gives us a very brief description of David. It says he was the man that was exalted, that was lifted up to be the Messiah, the anointed of the God of Israel. And then it gives us another little description. It tells us, in, I'm going to quote the words in Hebrew, Generally, these words are translated as the sweet singer of Israel. I think a more accurate translation would be the one who gives pleasantness and beauty to the song of Israel or to the songs of Israel. In other words, the bumper sticker description of, of David is the author of the Psalms, the sweet singer of Israel. You see, David lived a very colorful life. He experienced victory and defeat. He experienced glory and shame. He experienced guilt and he enjoyed forgiveness. He sinned and he came into favor. He experienced God's disfavor and he experienced God's favor, repentance, coming into favor of God after sinning. And David composed songs from each of these situations. If you look in the Psalms, you'll find a song or several songs giving expression to a heart that trusts in God from a situation of sin, from the struggles of success, failure, victory, defeat, honor, shame. And David gives expression of a heart that's trusting in God, yearning for God, hoping to God from each of these situations, from each of these emotional places. And as Israel traveled through the travails of exile and the troubles and the sufferings of exile, they found guidance and direction in the songs of David. David is still our king today. David still gives us direction. 
he teaches us how to hope to God, how to trust in God from every situation. And David actually gives articulation to the message that Israel carries throughout history. David speaks about how God is close to all who call upon him in sincerity. That's in Psalm 145. David speaks about the beauty of God's law, the love that's inherent in observing God's law in Psalm 19 and in Psalm 119. David, throughout the Psalms, speaks about the love of God, feeling the love of God in every facet of existence, experiencing the kindness of God in every breath of life. That is the message of Israel, and that is how David leads us still while we're in exile. So David led us in the time of when we were loyal to God, when we were obedient to God in an ideal time, and David still leads us through our suffering. He guides us with his songs, with the book of Psalms. When the Messiah comes, the Messiah will be a king of Israel. He will lead Israel to its destiny. He will sit on the throne of David. He will continue the legacy of David. He will not contradict the message of David. He will not oppose the message of David. He will not oppose the message that Israel has been carrying throughout its long exile. He will confirm it. He will affirm it. He will pick up the tune where David, his ancestor, left off. He will bring the message of David out into the light. He will inspire Israel, just as David, his ancestor, did before him, with his own humility to God. The Messiah, as David, his ancestor, before him, will emphasize his own helplessness before God and teach mankind the joy that's inherent in recognizing that helplessness, not fighting that helplessness, but recognizing God's love and embrace that's inherent in every breath of life. And the Messiah will just take David's legacy and bring it to new heights. He will build a temple in Jerusalem. He'll bring Israel to loyalty to God. He'll bring Israel to a great and beautiful relationship to God. And the nations of the earth will walk by that light. They'll walk by the light that flows from the people of Israel, as the prophet Isaiah promised in chapter 60. He'll, the nations of the earth will walk by the light that flows from the temple that the Messiah will build in Jerusalem, as Isaiah described in chapter 2. All the nations of the earth will come and rejoice together with the people of Israel and worship God together with the people of Israel in the temple in Jerusalem under the leadership of the Davidic king. So again, what is the Messiah? What does the Bible teach us about the Messiah? The Messiah is the king of the Jews. That means he will lead Israel to its destiny, the destiny that was promised to Abraham, and he will do so by fulfilling David's legacy, by continuing the legacy of David, of expression of humility before God, of singing the praises of God, the Messiah will pick up the tune where his ancestor David left off. Thanks so much for taking the time to watch this video. We're asking a really important question for the Jewish people in the whole world. Who is the real Jewish Messiah? According to the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament, what is the Messiah's role? How can we identify him? When should we expect him to come? Now, I'm going to cover a lot of scripture. There's a link on the description of the video here where you can get all these notes with all these references. But we're going to go on a journey through the scriptures. And here's what I believe I can demonstrate to you from our own Bible, that there are two aspects to the Messiah's work, one priestly and one royal. Because of that, there are two phases to his mission. First, he comes 
to die for our sins, to make atonement for our sins before the second temple was destroyed. At the end of the age, he'll come and establish his kingdom on the earth as our righteous king. I want to demonstrate that to you from the scripture. So we're going to go on an inductive journey through the Tanakh. In other words, we're going to go through the scriptures and do our best to let our Bible speak for itself. So we start in Genesis 12. We see that God called Abraham and God was going to call him to bless him and bless his offspring, the children of Israel. But it was not just about Israel. Rather, through Abram, Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Then God chooses Isaac, then Jacob, then from the 12 tribes of Jacob, Judah. And in Genesis 49:10, it says that Judah would have governing authority. And notice, the obedience of the peoples would be his. So once again, we see that the whole world will be blessed through the seed of Abraham, in particular through the seed of Judah. As we continue through the scriptures, we see that from the descendants of Judah, God chose David ultimately speaking of a future son of David. For example, 2 Samuel chapter 7, a greater David who would establish God's kingdom on the earth. This is how it's described in Isaiah eleven nine: They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And notice the very next verse, Isaiah eleven ten, speaking of the son of David, the Messiah, he shall stand as a banner for the people's and the nations will seek him. And we see this in other messianic prophecies like Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, where the peoples of the earth will go to Jerusalem during the messianic kingdom to learn from the God of Israel. So there are other prophecies about this son of David. Sometimes he's called David, as in Ezekiel 37, 24. Sometimes he's called the branch, as in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Sometimes he's described in other terms as in Isaiah 11.1. 1. And, and the scriptures say that this son of David, this Messiah, will regather the Jewish exiles. For example, Isaiah 11.12. He'll build the temple of the Lord. For example, Zechariah 6.13. He'll establish God's kingdom on the earth. As he read, for example, Isaiah 11.9. He'll usher in an era of peace and the universal knowledge of the Lord. For example, Isaiah 2.1-4. Th- this is what many traditional Jews expect when they pray for the coming of the Messiah. This is what many followers of Jesus, Yeshua, expect when he returns. So we have that same holy expectation. I affirm all these verses about the Messiah, son of David. But this is not the full and complete description of the Messiah, son of David, according to Tanakh. As I stated at the outset, the Messiah will also function as a priest making atonement for our sin and becoming a light to the nations of the earth before returning to complete his mission. I should note that one of the roles of the priests of Israel was to teach the children of Israel about God and his ways, to make the ways of God known to them. Jesus, the Messiah, the great high priest, makes the ways of God known to the nations as well. So here's the question. Why do I say that the Messiah will function as a priest? Once again, David is the prototype. While king, he sometimes did what only priests were supposed to do. For example, he offered sacrifices in 2 Samuel 24. He wore the linen ephod in 2 Samuel 6. He ate the consecrated bread for the priests in 1 Samuel 21. It even says in 2 Samuel 8.18 that David's sons were Kohanim, priests. 
Then, here's the clearest passage, Psalm 110, which is either speaking about the Messiah, David speaking about the Messiah, or a court poet speaking about David as the prototype of the Messiah. What does it say? You are a priest for the, forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek himself was a priestly king. David slash the Messiah will be a priestly king. Then we come to Zechariah 6. The high priest Joshua is set to represent the branch. Remember, this is a messianic title. And as high priest, he is crowned and sits on a throne as high priest. This is what it says, Zechariah 6, beginning verse 11. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Josedek. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says, here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. Now, there are other translations that state that there will also be a priest on his throne, but either way, the Messiah, called the branch, is represented by the high priest Joshua wearing a crown. Rather than Zerubbabel, the governor, descendant of David, he's not the one crowned sitting on a throne. No, it is the high priest Joshua. On one reading of the Hebrew, the future messianic king will also be a royal priest. On the other reading, the future messianic king is represented by a royal priest and will in the future rule along with this royal priest. So either way, you cannot separate the Messiah from priestly ministry. He's represented by a priestly figure. He is a priestly king. And so the principle is simple, and it'll become clear as we continue our journey through the scriptures. First, the Messiah will fulfill his duties as a priestly king, dying to make atonement for our sins and bringing salvation to the nations. At the end of the age, He'll return and complete his mission. But he alone can complete the mission since he alone started the mission. Just like the only president that can serve a second term is the one who served the first term, and the only team that can play in the second half is the team that played in the first half. Now, you might say, well, even if the Messiah is a priestly king, where does, where does it say that in our scriptures he's going to die for our sins? So let's go back to the book of Isaiah. Let's look in particular in chapters 40 to 55 a section which focuses on Israel's deliverance from Babylon and exile. For many of the prophets, this provided the backdrop for all future redemption, Israel coming out of bondage. This is a picture of God's final plan of redemption. Now, according to Isaiah 42, a theme reiterated in Isaiah 49, someone designated the servant of the Lord will be a light to the nations. The question is, who is this servant of the Lord? In Isaiah 41 to 53, the noun Eved, servant, occurs 20 times. Sometimes the servant is Israel, as stated explicitly in Isaiah 41, 8 and 9. At other times, the servant is an individual sent on a mission to Israel, as in Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. In Isaiah 50, the servant, who is clearly an individual, suffers brutal treatment. In Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, the servant will be highly exalted, but will first suffer terrible punishment, disfigurement, appearing to suffer for his own sins, while in reality, he was suffering for the sins of others, thereby bringing them redemption. Who does this describe? Now, let's examine the evidence carefully. When we do, we'll see that references to the servant as a people in these chapters in Isaiah end with Isaiah 48, 20. 
while the references to the servant as an individual come into clearest focus, beginning with Isaiah chapter 49 and continuing through the end of chapter 53. So accordingly, in Isaiah 40 to 48, when the greater focus is on the servant as a nation, the term Israel occurs 34 times and Jacob 19 times. Whereas in chapters 49 to 53, where the greater focus is on the servant as an individual, Israel occurs just six times. By the way, five in chapter 49, where the servant is sent on a mission to Israel. And Jacob occurs just three times, all in chapter 49. Again, the servant sent to Jacob. So by the time Isaiah 52, 13 is reached, the spotlight is on a person, not a people. Although the person is certainly connected to the people. And by the way, servant in the singular does not occur again in Isaiah after chapter 53, verse 11. It's only in the plural. Now, note carefully what is written in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. Speaking to this servant of the Lord, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. The servant is a covenant for the people, for the people of Israel, meaning he restores their covenant relationship. He is not the people of Israel. Same thing is repeated in Isaiah 49, 8. Note also that while the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 is a righteous, guiltless sufferer, Israel in Isaiah 40, 53 is often anything but righteous. So Isaiah 42, Verses 24 and 25, it is stated that servant Israel was exiled because of sin, incurring God's wrath. Isaiah 43, 8, servant Israel is blind and deaf. See also Isaiah 42, 18 and 19. In 43, 22 to 28, Israel fails to call on the Lord. In 47, 6, God is angry with Israel. In 48, 1 through 6, Israel is guilty again with the exile and return foretold. Look also at Isaiah 48, 8, B to 11, and Isaiah 48, 17 to 19. And in Isaiah 50, verse 1, God's indictment is forthright, quote, For your iniquities, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. And that means being sent away into exile. This is in harmony with prophetic voices like Amos, for example, 4, 4 through 12, Hosea, for example, 5, 7 through 15, along with the explicit testimony of 2 Kings 17, especially verses 7 to 23, all of which state emphatically that the exile of the northern tribes of Israel by the Assyrians was because of Israel's persistent, unrepentant rebellion and sin. While prophets like Jeremiah, for example, 32, 28 to 36, Ezekiel, for example, 5, 5 to 17, along with the explicit testimony of 2 Chronicles 36, especially verses 15 and 16, state emphatically that the exile of the southern tribes of Judah by the Babylonians was because of Judah's persistent, unrepentant rebellion and sin. This is confirmed by the retrospective testimony of Lamentations, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, all the notes, all the verses in my notes, along with Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Zechariah 1, Daniel 9. This is also in harmony with Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 in the Torah, both of which state emphatically that if Israel as a nation is righteous, it will be established, secure, and blessed. But if Israel as a nation is unrighteous, it will be exiled, uprooted, and cursed. It's absolutely clear then 
that Israel as a nation cannot be the servant of the Lord, described in these key chapters in Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 53. According to Isaiah 49, the servant of the Lord is an individual within Israel. He's actually called Israel since he represents them. He is tasked with regathering the tribes of Israel, but he apparently fails in his mission, expressing his disappointment. Quote, I've labored in vain. I spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. God responds to him. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I've kept. I'll also make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Who does this describe? Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, the servant, clearly an individual, says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pull up my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting, yet God would vindicate him. Then Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, again, referring to the same servant who will be highly exalted. Compare 52, 13 to Isaiah 6, 1 with reference to the Lord. But first, he'll suffer terrible disfigurement, yet he will sprinkle or startle many nations, according to 52, 15. Once again, the servant of the Lord will touch the nations of the earth, but not before he suffers terribly for the sins of others, bearing their iniquity. As Isaiah 53 testifies, the servant of the Lord will be rejected by his own people who thought he was dying for his own sins when in reality he was dying for their sins. Quote, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He'll be cut off from the land of the living. He's going to die, yet he's going to live on. He's going to be resurrected. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's interesting in Numbers 35 that the high priest dying frees the innocent manslayer from exile. There's something significant about the death of the high priest. Here, Jesus, the priestly Messiah, dies for the sins of his people that we through his death can live. It is the intercession of the righteous servant that brings healing. Israel does not fit this description. Israel is not a righteous servant. And yet, according to Isaiah 53, 9, the servant had done no violence. There was any deceit in his mouth. 53.11, my righteous servant will justify many. And the idea that, that Israel's suffering in the nations will bring healing to the nations, no. Jeremiah 50, 17 and 18, one of many verses that says God will punish the nations that punished his people in exile. And the idea that Isaiah 52, 14 and 15 tell us that the nations of the earth will one day realize, oh, Israel was in exile for our sins, suffering for our sins, not for theirs, no. Ezekiel 39 says this, And the nations shall know that the house of Israel were exiled only for their iniquity, because they trespassed against me, that I, and so I hid my face from them and delivered them into the hands of their adversaries so that they fell by the sword. That's what the nations will recognize. No, it is as Psalm 118 says, The stone the builders rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone. Now, here's what's important. All this will take place before the second temple is 
destroyed. We know the day will come in the future, Zechariah 12, where our Jewish people need, in need of cleansing in Jerusalem will look to the one they pierced and will mourn, leading to cleansing of sin in 13, uh, Zechariah 13, and then leading to the establishment of God's kingdom on the earth in Zechariah 14. So our Jewish repentance in recognizing the Messiah is essential for bringing him back. But he had to come and complete his mission before the second temple was destroyed. How do we know that? Haggai 2 says the glory of the second temple will be greater than the glory of the first. God will fill it with his glory, which is always referring to his divine presence. Yet that temple didn't have the Shekinah, didn't have the Ark of the Covenant, didn't have the divine fire. How was the glory of the second temple greater than the glory of the first? The Messiah himself came and he poured out his spirit there and worked his wonders there. Malachi, the third chapter, the Lord himself will visit the temple. Which temple? The second temple. That's what Malachi is speaking of. And bring purging and purification to his people. Did that happen? Yes. The Messiah, the Lord himself visited that temple. And then what's written in Daniel 9, 24 to 27? This is speaking of God's plan of redemption, that before the second temple is destroyed, it will be rebuilt, and before it is destroyed, that sin will be brought to its full measure, and that atonement will be made and everlasting righteousness brought in. Did it happen? Yes, it happened. The Messiah died for our sins, the full measure of human sin expressed in rejecting him and nailing him to the cross. Atonement was made, everlasting righteousness brought in. It's what the prophets declared. So we can also see from the scriptures passages like Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, there is a righteous sufferer who appears to be forsaken by God, given up to the jaws of death. But then he's delivered from death. And his deliverance is so great that from the ends of the earth, people will praise and worship the God of Israel. Who is that speaking about? Who brings that psalm? Who brings the Hebrew scriptures to their full meaning? It is the Messiah of Israel. As it happened to Israel, the firstborn son, it happens to the Messiah, the firstborn son. As it happened to David, the priestly king, it happens to the Messiah, the priestly king. Who is the one? Ask yourself, described by the scriptures, this one who would suffer and die for our sins before the second temple was destroyed, this one who will be a light to the nations, but only after being rejected by his own people, this one who will function as a priestly king. The reason we know that we are not praying for the first coming of the Messiah, but for the second coming, is because he came and accomplished everything he had to accomplish. The only possible candidate for the one the Jewish people are praying for to come as the Messiah is the one who came. He completed the first part of the mission. He will complete the second. He has become a light to the Gentiles. God's salvation has gone to the ends of the earth. Blessing has come to the nations just as promised. This is the work of Israel's Messiah who has brought a multitude, hundreds of millions of Gentiles to worship the God of Israel. This is his priestly work, but it begins with us, the Jewish people, the Messiah dying for our sins. This is the real Jewish Messiah. This presentation is a response to Dr. Brown's presentation entitled, The Real Jewish Messiah, Part 1. Dr. Brown begins that presentation by telling us that he accepts the roles assigned to the Messiah by traditional Judaism, namely, the ingathering of the Jewish exile, the rebuilding of the Temple in Jerusalem, ushering an era of peace and universal knowledge of God. However, Dr. Brown tells us that Judaism 
the Jewish people have missed a critical aspect, a, criti a critical element of the, of the Messiah's mission. According to Dr. Brown, the Messiah is first supposed to accomplish atonement for the sins of mankind through his vicarious death, and only afterwards will he return to fulfill the messianic expectations of traditional Judaism. This debate between Judaism and Christianity is not merely a debate about the roles of the Messiah. Are there four functions to the Messiah or five? Is the Messiah supposed to come once as per traditional Judaism or is he supposed to come twice as per Christianity? This is a debate about faith and worship. Dr. Brown believes that the Messiah already fulfilled this first function to be an all-atoning sacrifice and Dr. Brown believes that all of humanity needs to put their faith and trust in this atoning sacrifice of the Messiah or else they are unsaved and unredeemed. From a Jewish perspective, what we hear Dr. Brown telling us is that our love for God, our faith in God, our trust in God is inadequate and incomplete because we do not trust in the atoning sacrifice of His Messiah. So this is not a debate about numbers, this is a debate about faith and worship. The Jewish rejection of the Christian position is not something that is peripheral to Judaism. The Jewish rejection of the, of the Christian position cuts to the core and the heart of our standing as a covenant nation before God. The prophet Isaiah tells us that we are God's witnesses. God taught us that there is but one God, and that is our testimony to the world. Unto you it was shown in order that you know that the Lord is God, there is no other. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 4.35. Through the Exodus experience, through the Sinai revelation, the Jewish people came to know that there is but one God, and that's our testimony to the world. And that means that all trust and all worship ought to be directed to God and to Him alone. And He is sufficient. Trust in Him is completely adequate. There's nowhere else to put your trust but in Him. And if you put your trust in Him, you don't need to put your trust anywhere else or in anything else. So, there's a question about faith and trust. Is the trust and faith that the Jewish people have in God inadequate and incomplete, as Dr. Brown would have us believe? Or is it our faith in God, our trust in God, adequate and true, as Judaism affirms? Now, the prophets settled this argument a long time ago, and they settled it decisively, with clarity, and with force. The prophets taught us that the Jewish trust in God will be vindicated at the end of the age. When the Messiah comes, all the nations of the earth will see that our trust in God is true and adequate. Not only that, the prophets took this one step further. The prophets tell us that Israel's trust in God, the trust that the Jewish people have in God, is a linchpin in God's plan for the salvation of humanity. It is through the vindication of Israel's trust in God that the nations of the world come to know God. The prophet Micha, Micah, chapter 7, describes how Israel, while she is suffering in the darkness of her pain in her exile, while she is suffering for her sins, she trusts in God, and in that darkness, God is her light. And then the prophet goes on to describe how that trust that Israel has for God is, is vindicated to the eyes of her enemies, and that's how her enemies learn to fear God. Psalm 102 tells us what process God will use to bring knowledge of God to the nations of the world. The psalmist tells us 
that the nations will fear God and God will be seen in His glory because, in other words, why will the nations learn to fear God? How will the nations learn to fear God? Because God has built Zion. He is seen in His glory. God turned to the prayer of the destitute, that's the Jewish people, and He has not despised their prayer. So it's when God answers the prayer of the Jewish people, when the prayer of the Jewish people, when the hope and yearning of the Jewish people is vindicated, that's when the nations will come to know God. And you know exactly who it is that the Jewish people are praying to, and you know who they are not praying to. This theme, this concept that the knowledge of God comes to the nations of the world through the vindication of Israel's trust in God is not something that the prophets said once or twice. This is something that they repeated dozens of times throughout Scripture. In many places throughout Scripture we learn that when Israel's prayer is answered, when their trust is vindicated, when their enemies are put to shame, that's when the nations of the world will come to know God. Because knowledge of God is not merely knowing that God exists. Knowledge of God means knowing and understanding that you could come to God with all of your problems, even your worst sins. You can bring them directly to God. Knowing God means that every cause for trust, for trust and for worship resides with Him and with Him alone. Knowing God means that He, he answers he, every prayer. He hears every prayer of all who turn to Him with sincerity, sincerity and He despises no prayer. Knowing God means knowing that those who trust in Him and in Him alone will not be shamed. So the prophets openly and explicitly settled this argument. They told us clearly that Israel's trust in God will be vindicated, it's adequate, it's true, and not as Dr. Brown would have us believe that it's inadequate and incomplete. So where does Dr. Brown see the need for this trust in the atoning sacrifice of a Messiah in the pages of Scripture. Here we have on the one side all of these explicit passages which tell us that the Jewish trust for God is exalted. It's the salvation of humanity. So where does Dr. Brown get this trust in the atoning sacrifice of Messiah? Where do you find it in the pages of the Jewish Scriptures? There is not one place not one explicit passage in all of Scripture where Dr. Brown could point to, even according to his own interpretation, which tells us that we need to put our trust in the atoning sacrifice of a Messiah. What Dr. Brown is doing is he's pointing to gaps in the scriptural narrative, places, concepts that the prophets left unsaid. He's weaving an interpretation to fill those gaps, and he's telling us that his interpretation points to the need for this trust in the atoning sacrifice. So what do we have over here? Here we have the explicit word of the prophets of God, repeated many times over on the one hand, and then we have Dr. Brown's interpretation on the other hand, and Dr. Brown wants us to reinterpret the explicit word of God, repeated many times over on the basis of his tenuous interpretation. That's not reading scripture. That's imposing theology on scripture. So, which passages is Dr. Brown pointing to? Where does he see anything about this trust in the atoning sacrifice of the Messiah? Well, Dr. Brown points to the suffering servant of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12, the prophet Isaiah describes a suffering servant of God. This suffering servant is suddenly exalted to the eyes of the kings of all the nations. And then the kings of the nations realize and confess 
this servant, whom they had despised and believed to be subhuman, was really suffering for their sins all along. So here we have it, Dr. Brown says. Here we have vicarious suffering. The suffering servant of God is atoning for the sins of the kings of the nations. Now, before we point to the flaws in Dr. Brown's interpretation, let's step back and realize what it is that the prophet left unsaid, even according to Dr. Brown's flawed interpretation. The prophets did not tell us, the prophet did not tell us that this servant is the Messiah. Dr. Brown is telling us that the servant is the Messiah. That's not something that the prophet bothered to tell us. The prophet did not tell us that the suffering, the, the atonement provided by the suffering servant is the only valid form of atonement, the final form of atonement, the all-encompassing form of atonement as Christianity would have us believe. That's something that the prophet left unsaid. And finally, and most significantly, nowhere does the prophet say that we need to trust in the sacrifice of the servant in order to receive this atonement. The prophet left that unsaid. How strange. According to Dr. Brown, these are some of the most critical teachings in the whole Bible. This is the salvation of humanity relies on these teachings, and the prophet couldn't find the room to tell, it, to tell this to us. Remember, the prophet told us many times how important Israel's trust to God is and how significant that is and how it will be vindicated at the end of the age many times over. The prophet found the room to tell us that, but he didn't find the room to tell us that we need to trust in the atoning sacrifice of the servant. Why not? Dr. Brown argues that the prophet tells us that the servant is perfectly sinless. Sinless to the degree that's basically above human. Now, where does Dr. Brown see this in the passage? Dr. Brown points to two verses, to verse 9 and to verse 11. In verse 9, the prophet tells us that the servant had committed no violence and no deception was found in his mouth. That's verse 9. And in verse 11, the prophet tells us he used the word tzaddik, righteous one, to describe the servant. According to Dr. Brown, that means perfect sinlessness. Dr. Brown's interpretation has no basis in the reality of Scripture. If we read verse 9 from the beginning till the end, we see that what the prophet is saying, he's not talking about perfect sin sinlessness, he's talking about unjust accusation. The prophet begins by telling us that the persecutors of the servant treated him as if the servant was guilty of certain crimes, so he was being persecuted for no crime that he had committed. The prophet's simply telling us that the servant is innocent of the crimes that his persecutors are accusing him of. The, the prophet is not telling us anything about sinless perfection. And the word in verse 11, tzaddik, righteous one, doesn't mean sinless perfection. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 2, this very same word is used to describe the nation of Israel. Goy tzaddik, a righteous nation. Israel is far from sinless. Israel is not sinless. Israel is considered righteous because it has some degree of trust in God. We see that the word tzaddik is not a word that denotes perfect sinlessness. So the prophet said nothing about the sinlessness of the servant. So who is this servant? Who is this servant, suffering servant of Isaiah 53? Before we get to that question, let me, point, let me share a thought with you. The prophet said nothing about the identity of the servant. But the prophet brought us a message from the servant. In Isaiah chapter 50, 
verses 4 through 11, the prophet brings us a message from this suffering servant. We have the same suffering servant. In that section of Isaiah, the servant has not yet been vindicated. He is still suffering. And he tells us that he knows that he will be vindicated. He assures us that he will be vindicated. And he tells us he's confident that he will be vindicated. And do you know why he's so confident that he will be vindicated? Because he trusts in God. And then he brings us a message. He turns to his listeners. And he tells us that his message for his listeners is that they put their trust in God. So it's not so important for the prophet to tell us who the servant is. It's more important for the prophet to tell us, to bring us this message from the servant. And whoever you believe the servant to be, ask yourself, who did the servant pray to? Who is the servant praying to? Who is the servant trusting in? And the servant's message to you, to me, to all of us is that we put our trust in the same God that he is praying to, in the same God that he is trusting in. That is the servant's message for us. But who is the servant? I believe that the servant is Israel, not all of Israel, but those amongst Israel who are worthy of being called God's servant, those who trust in God. One second, how can I say that the servant is Israel? Didn't Dr. Brown tell us that the focus of the prophet fades away from the nation of Israel in the chapters preceding Isaiah 53. Now let me stop to explain this, because at this point, Dr. Brown is actually using a valid method of scriptural interpretation. He's applying it inaccurately, but his method in this case, right over here, is actually a valid method. So, in chapters 40 through 48, the prophet is focusing on the people of Israel. And accordingly, we find that there are over 50 references to the word Israel and Jacob. The word Israel and Jacob appears over 50 times in Isaiah chapters 40 through 48. But in chapters 49 through 52, the chapters leading up to the suffering servant passage, the references to Israel and Jacob diminish considerably. There are less than 10 quotes, Israel, Jacob, in those few passages. So this would seem to tell us that the prophet's focus is fading away from the people of Israel and he's directing our attention elsewhere. The problem is, with Dr. Brown's interpretation, with Dr. Brown's application of this valid scriptural method, is that the prophet has many other ways of referring to the people of Israel. The word Zion, Jerusalem, God's nation, the nation that has God's teaching in their heart, seekers of justice, seekers of God. These are just some of the nouns, some of the metaphors that the prophet uses to describe the people of Israel. There are certain pronouns that the prophet uses such as the female you, or the plural we, the plural you, the plural them, that tells us that the prophet is talking about the people of Israel. And in chapters 49, Isaiah 49 through 52, those chapters that lead up to the suffering servant passage, the prophet uses over 150 nouns, metaphors, and pronouns describing the people of Israel. So, according to Dr. Brown's own scriptural interpretation, the prophet is not fading his attention away from the people of Israel. He is zooming in on the people of Israel. The, this is a textual indica indicator that the suffering servant is the people of Israel. Another textual indicator, textual cue, to tell us that the servant is the people of Israel, in the beginning of chapter 53, the arm of the Lord is revealed on behalf of the servant. 
only a few verses earlier, the arm of the Lord is revealed on behalf of Israel. A straightforward reading of Scripture tells us that this revelation of the arm of the Lord is one and the same. It's not two different revelations of the arm of the Lord. Yet another textual cue, a scriptural cue, that tells us that the servant is Israel is because the prophet tells us that the way the kings of the, the, of the nations hear and see the exaltation of the servant is because they hear the report. Who would have believed our report? Shemua Seinu. So this is a report that goes to the ends of the earth, informing the earth of the exaltation of the servant. In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 20, we learn exactly what report it is that goes to the ends of the earth. In chapter 48, verse 20, Isaiah tells us that the report that goes to the ends of the earth is that God redeemed his servant, Jacob. So there's another textual cue that tells us that the servant is Israel. Yet another textual cue that tells us that the servant is Israel, the last metaphor that the prophet uses right before Isaiah 53 to describe the people of Israel as bearers of the vessels of the Lord, or armor bearers of the Lord, which tells us that Israel plays an active role in God's plan for humanity, in God's plan for the salvation of mankind. He's, we are, so to speak, God's helpers. And Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, is someone who has the purpose of God succeed through his hand. So we have these textual cues and quite a few other textual cues that tell us that the servant is Israel. The overwhelming weight of the textual indicators point to Israel. The Christian cannot argue with this national interpretation that the servant is, is Israel on the text on textual grounds. It's a theological problem that Christianity has with the interpretation that the servant is Israel because Christianity cannot imagine how Israel suffers for the sins of the world. This is a theological problem, not a textual problem. The interpretation that Christianity is proposing comes with a slew of its own theological problems which are far more serious. We're dealing with questions of idolatry, directing worship. So there's no textual advantage, no theological advantage in the Christian interpretation. Besides, the prophet is telling us that we will not understand the theology of the suffering of the servant until the servant's actually exalted, which didn't happen yet. So I think it's unwise to base your whole theological construct on a theology that the prophet's telling us that we will not so easily understand. So what is the theological explanation of this passage? I will share it with you in the notes to this lecture, the notes to this presentation. And in fact, in the notes of this presentation, I go into many more details. I respond to, I try to respond to every point that Dr. Brown raised in his previous presentation. I would like to get to one more point. Dr. Brown told us that the Jewish people do not accept the priestly role of the Messiah. This is untrue. Of course we accept the priestly, priestly role of the Messiah. After all, Messiah is the king of Israel, and Israel is a priestly nation. Exodus 19.6 and Isaiah 61.6 tell us that Israel is a priestly nation. But how are we a priestly nation? How is the Messiah a priestly king? The priests are the repositories for God's truth. That's what the prophet Malachi says in chapter 2. The lips of the priests preserve knowledge, guard knowledge, and teaching is sought from his mouth. And that's precisely the role that God assigned to the Jewish people. It's the knowledge of God. We are the nation that has God's Torah in our hearts. That's Isaiah 51, there are many other references in Scripture that tell us that we are the repository to God's knowledge. And the knowledge that we carry, the knowledge that our King carries, the Messiah carries, that is relevant to the nations, is that all of your trust belongs to God. 
and all of your worship belongs to, to God, to the God that the Jewish people pray to. And when you will put all of your trust in God, and you will learn to bring all of your problems to God, all of your sins directly to God, you will learn to declare, just as our king declared before us, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You will realize that you are missing nothing. In this video, I'm going to respond to Rabbi Blumenthal's presentation on the real Jewish Messiah. Hopefully by now, you watched my opening 20-minute presentation and Rabbi Blumenthal's opening 20-minute presentation. Now we are each posting rebuttals to one another's presentations. I encourage you, study the scriptures carefully. Go to God and say, God, give me insight and wisdom as I study your word. I believe you will see that Jesus Yeshua is the promised Messiah of Israel. Uh, in his video presentation, Rabbi Blumenthal speaks of a future messianic age, various things that will happen when the Messiah rules and reigns. I, too, look forward to those things. However, I would say Rabbi Blumenthal has overlooked or ignored some very important scriptural testimony about the Messiah, and so his picture of the Messiah is partial. In his video, he asks, what information about the Messiah did the author of the Bible make clear to us? What is it about the Messiah that the author of the Bible wants us to know? That we shouldn't walk away from his book without knowing this clearly and unequivocally. What does God want us to know about the Messiah? I believe Rabbi Blumenthal listened selectively to the author of the Bible and did not take in the full testimony of the Hebrew scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament. He tells us, first and foremost, the Messiah will be a king of the Jewish people, but he fails to recognize that we will reject our king as a nation before receiving him as a nation. And look, we've, we've made mistakes like this before in our history. God's plan of redemption still goes on even with our mistakes. The fact is that Rabbi Blumenthal sees the mission of the Messiah bound inextricably with the Jewish people, always and without exception, because of which he puts too much faith in our Jewish people, too much faith in a sinning people. In contrast, I put all my faith in God and a sinless Messiah, not in our people, knowing how often we have failed. Rabbi Blumenthal says it's the responsibility of the Messiah to lead Israel to its destiny, and he most certainly will do that. But as the author of the Bible tells us plainly, as a nation— will first reject him, during which time he'll be received by the Gentile world, after which we'll receive him as a nation, thereby joining our destinies together. You know what this is like? It's like the 10 older sons of Jacob saying that Joseph was just an empty dreamer when he had all these dreams about them all bowing down to him. He was just a, an empty dreamer. And they sold them off to slavery, presumably to die in Egypt or somewhere else. Instead, he gets raised up as the leader in the greatest nation on, on the earth, right under Pharaoh. And through him, Egypt is saved and Israel is saved. And it's only after that that the brothers recognize who Joseph is. It's a parallel of what I believe is going to happen at the end of the age and what is happening now, that Jesus, just like Joseph, is received by the Gentile world while his own family, Israel, they reject him. They scorn him only to bow down to him in recognition at the end. 
Rabbi Blumenthal believes that Israel, uh, that, excuse me, the Messiah cannot fulfill his destiny without Israel. I say Israel cannot fulfill its destiny without the Messiah. And, and in his presentation, it's interesting, he mentions Israel as much as he mentions the Messiah. I focus on the Messiah. So listen to what Moses, Isaiah, and Ezekiel said about our people, because I want to encourage you to put your faith in the Messiah, not in the people of Israel. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 27 and 29. Moses speaking, Well, I know how defiant and stiff-necked you are. Even now, while I'm still alive in your midst, you have been defiant towards the Lord. How much more than when I'm dead? For I know that after my death, you're sure to become utterly corrupt and to turn away from the, the way I've commanded you. In days to come, disaster will fall on you because you do evil in the sight of the Lord and arouse his anger by which your hands have made. Look at Isaiah chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Now go, it says, write it down on a tablet and inscribe it on a record that it may be with them for future days a witness forever. For it is a rebellious people, faithless children, children who refused to heed the instruction of the Lord. This is God's testimony about the nation Israel. When he sends Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3, listen to what he says to the prophet. Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. The house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they're not willing to listen to me, for the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. So, so yes, we have a wonderful future as Jewish people promised to us by God, but it's all through God's grace and mercy through the Messiah, not because of what we ultimately achieve. I, I do agree with Rabbi Blumenthal that at, at some brief times in our history, the nations have learned about God through the nation of Israel. But for most of our recorded history, we've been examples of disobedience and sin. That's why we need a Savior. <clears throat> Rabbi Blumenthal acknowledges this. He says, but for much of Israel's history, we did not live up to this ideal, God's ideal. We sinned, he says, we disobeyed God, and we did not experience blessing. <clears throat> Instead, we experienced exile, suffering, and curse. But he adds this, even in our exiled state, we still play a part in God's plan to bring blessing to all the nations. Here is where he overstates Israel's role and the, the effect of the Jewish people in exile. According to the author of scripture, according to God, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5, Israel in exile, this is what God says, and all day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. He says this in Ezekiel, wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. Contrary to what Rabbi Blumenthal says is we have suffered in exile because of our sins. We have not brought the knowledge of God to the world. Instead, we've brought reproach to the name of God. What's the matter with Israel's God? The temple's destroyed. The people are in exile. What's the matter with their God? It has brought profanation of the divine name, not sanctification of the divine name. And, and that's why the nations taunt us saying, where is your God? Because of our sin in exile, we're be, we've been dispersed and it makes God look bad. So with the temple being destroyed, this is what God says in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, beginning verse seven, 19. It's a long passage, but I want to read it to you. 2 Chronicles 7, verses 19 to 22. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I've given you, 
and go off to serve other gods and worship them. Then I'll uproot you from my land, which I've given them, and will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by it will be appalled and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt, and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. That's what the nations say when we're in exile. Not what Rabbi Blumenthal says that still we're teaching them about the one true God and so on. No, they're, they're saying Israel's disobedient. Israel sinned. That's the message that they're getting, and God's name is blasphemed because of that. And let's remember, as I pointed out in tremendous detail, and the whole Hebrew scripture testifies to this, that we were in exile because of our sin, that, that we were suffering for our sins, not for the sins of the nations. Here's just one verse among hundreds in the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. God says this, Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned their backs on him. This is just one among many, many verses about the people of Israel. Let us not look to our people for salvation and deliverance, but rather to the Messiah who will save us and redeem us by his grace. That's, again, why we need a Savior. In my initial presentation, I quoted the verse. Interestingly, Rabbi Blumenthal did as well. This is what the nations will conclude about Israel in exile. This is Ezekiel 39, 23. And the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies and they all fell by the sword. Interestingly, Rabbi Blumenthal quotes this verse in his presentation, recognizing that God will not vindicate our behavior, but rather our message. But the fact is that message is vindicated every day around the world right now through the Messiah. And it'll be vindicated in the end when our people repent because our behavior has always been the problem. Rabbi Blumenthal, again, feels that even in our exile, because of our sin, the nations learned about God through us. This reminds me of interaction that one of our students in our ministry school had with Rabbi Shmuley Boteach when he visited the school and gave a presentation to our students some years ago as to why they should not proselytize Jews, evangelize Jews. And this student from Ghana, African student, said, aren't the Jews called to be a light to the world? And Rabbi Botech said yes, began to explain how with his normal eloquence. And then this, this man said this, it wasn't a Jewish rabbi who brought the knowledge of God to my country and turned us away from wor- worshiping idols. It was a Christian missionary. It is the Messiah who is a light to the nations and is bringing the, nation, the knowledge of God to the ends of the earth. And as I've ministered in the most obscure places imaginable all around the world, there are people worshiping the God of Israel and receiving the Hebrew Bible as sacred scripture through the work of Jesus, the Messiah, who continues to fulfill the Messiah's role of being a light to the nations, even while his Jewish people reject him. When the Jewish people receive him at the end by grace, then the fullness of being a light to the nations will be experienced by the world. As for our nation, as described in the pages of Scripture, in light of our sinful history, should it surprise us that we sinned against the Messiah when he came? I mean, we sinned against Moses. We sinned against the prophets. There's even a Jewish tradition in Pesikta Rabati that when Jeremiah was given the commission to go prophesy to Israel, he said, I can't speak to Israel. They kill all the prophets. They've killed all the prophets before us. To this day, 
our people often get things very wrong, which is why Zechariah 12 describes at the end of the age, we will look to the one we have pierced. We will recognize our sin in deep repentance, and that's when God will have mercy on us. Now, let's go back to King David. Interestingly, Rabbi Blumenthal's presentation, he actually mentions David more than he mentions the Messiah. And we both agree that David is the prototype of the Messiah. But significantly, Rabbi Blumenthal overlooks key truths about David as the prototype of the Messiah. And with all the many scriptures he presents and in his notes lays out all the verses, he left out Psalm 110 entirely, which to me is inexplicable. So in Rabbi Blumenthal's presentation, he cites Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33, speaking about this man called the branch and recognizes that this is a prophecy about the Messiah, the son of David, that he will be called the branch. But he overlooks what's said about the branch in Zechariah 3 and then in particular Zechariah 6, that the branch, the Messiah, will be a priestly king. That the branch, the Messiah, is represented by a high priest sitting on his throne and wearing a crown. This is significant and completely overlooked by Rabbi Blumenthal, as well as Psalm 110, where it says of David as the prototype of the Messiah or of the Messiah himself, he will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who was also a priestly king. So uh, Rabbi Blumenthal says the Psalms of David inspire us to keep sight of our destiny to hold on to God's truth and to hope for God's salvation. And the Psalms of David actually give voice, expression, and articulation to our message. And he misses some of the most important messages of the Psalms, including the suffering and redemption of Psalm 22 and the priestly Messiah of Psalm 110. Again, as we've demonstrated clearly, the author of Scripture wants us to understand that this priestly Messiah will die for our sins, will suffer for our sins, will make atonement for our sins. One of the longest messianic prophecies in the Bible, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. It tells us he will be highly exalted, but only after suffering terribly. It tells us how we, the Jewish people, will think he's suffering for his own sins, but instead he's suffering for our sins, and it's through his wounds we are healed. This is what is clearly laid out by the author of Scripture, who also speaks of the Messiah's rejection in Isaiah 49, and that despite being rejected by the people of Israel, he will be a light to the nations. Again, these are passages about the Messiah that were overlooked and that are a clear part of the testimony. Rabbi Blumenthal rightly says, when the Messiah comes, he'll not come with a different message. The Messiah will not oppose the message of Israel. He'll confirm it. That's exactly what Jesus Yeshua, the Messiah, did. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Yeshua said this, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Rabbi Blumenthal said, like his ancestor before him, the Messiah will see to it that a temple is built for God in Jerusalem. Yes, once we embrace him as our king, the Messiah will build that temple for us. But let's remember, for a season, David was rejected by his own people, and he had to go into exile. And, and then when the nation began to bring him back, he, he wrote a letter to the elders of Judah, his own tribe, and said, why should you be the last to welcome the king back? I'm not coming back until you welcome. It's the same with the Jewish people today. We've rejected our Messiah as a nation. And the world now, all over the world, has embraced Jesus Yeshua as the Messiah, as the Savior, and thereby connected to the God of Israel, just as the prophecy said would happen. And 
when when the Jewish people, the Messiah's own people, welcome him back, then he'll return, just as happened with David and the elders of Judah. Rabbi Blumenthal fails to recognize that the author of Scripture also gave us a time frame for redemption, namely that atonement had to be made for our sins before the second temple was destroyed. And to repeat, he's failed to take, into to- the, take in the total testimony of God's word, most particularly a number of key passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 52, 13 to 53, 12. And what's fascinating is that there is rabbinic interpretation that does not apply Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12 does not apply the passages to Israel, but rather to the Messiah or to the prophet or to the prophets. In other words, I'm not the only one saying that these passages refer to the Messiah. Also, there's rabbinic interpretation that says it. I'm not the only one saying these passages do not refer to Israel. There's also rabbinic interpretation that says it. So what is the author of Scripture trying to convey to us? Let's look again at these verses in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6 and verse 12. He, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, was despised and rejected by mankind, the man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. As I pointed out in my opening presentation, this cannot refer to the nation of Israel, can't refer to the righteous remnant of Israel, through whom the nations did not receive healing as our people were in exile. Rather, it can only rightly refer to the Messiah, the one who fulfills the destiny of our people. And and we should also ask why there's such a rich tradition about a suffering Messiah in Judaism. You would think that Jewish texts would expunge such an idea because Christians made such a big deal about this. You'd think they would expunge the idea. But this theme of a suffering Messiah is found in the Talmud. It's found richly in the Midrashic literature and Jewish literature right up until this day talks about a Messiah that will suffer in various ways. And it's rich and it's poignant. No, no, that doesn't prove what the Hebrew Bible says, but it indicates to me that this tradition about a suffering Messiah is so deeply rooted in Scripture that it's impossible for our people to get away from it totally. And also, through our own history of suffering and exile, it is a way through which we can better relate to the Messiah. He, like us, suffers in pain in exile. He understands our pain, and he alone will redeem us. So I believe that as we look at the overall testimony of Scripture, there's no ambiguity if we'll just say, let's look at the whole testimony. Yes, the Messiah will fulfill Israel's destiny. Yes, he will bring Israel to repentance at the end of the age. Yes, this will bring blessing to the entire world. All of that will happen. But first... The same one who will come in the clouds of heaven, according to Daniel 7. He had to come riding meek and lowly on a donkey, as in Zechariah 9. This same one who will be highly exalted, according to Isaiah 52.13, will first suffer total abasement, according to 52.14 in the book of Isaiah. 
And while Israel has brought reproach to God's name as we've been scattered around the world, as the name of Messiah has gone around the world, he's been a light to the Gentiles. Yes, Isaiah 49 says it looks like he failed in his mission to Israel, but God says, fear not, you will also be a light to the nations that my salvation may go to the ends of the earth. I encourage every Jewish person watching this, take in the full testimony of the truth of God's word. We have arrived at the third and final segment of this debate about the real Jewish Messiah. Where do we stand? What have we learned so far? Dr. Brown shared his narrative, the portrait of what he believes about the Messiah. According to Dr. Brown, the Messiah is a perfectly sinless individual who dies for the sins of the world. He is rejected by the Jewish people and he is accepted by the Gentiles. Dr. Brown encourages his audience to put their trust in the sacrifice of this Messiah. I explained that from a Jewish perspective, and the testimony of the Jewish people is that every iota of trust that exists in the human heart belongs with God and with God alone. So from a Jewish perspective, what we hear Dr. Brown telling us is that our trust in God is inadequate, it's incomplete, until we supplement that trust with the trust that he's advocating, the trust in his Messiah. Dr. Brown's messianic narrative actually has him looking forward to a time when the Jewish trust in God to the exclusion of trust in his Messiah is proven empty and inadequate. Dr. Brown quoted passage after passage from the scriptures in his effort to find scriptural support for this narrative. And Dr. Brown accuses me, because I reject his narrative, he accuses me of ignoring and overlooking all of these scriptures. My response to that accusation is that I have not ignored, I have not overlooked these scriptures, I actually read these scriptures, and it is these very scriptures that have directed me to reject Dr. Brown's narratives. That these very scriptures testify that Dr. Brown's narrative is false. Let me provide an example. Dr. Brown quoted Psalm 22 several times throughout his presentation. He sees Psalm 22 as a pillar of scriptural support for his narrative. Now again, Dr. Brown's narrative has the Jewish trust in God inadequate because the Jewish trust in God does not include trust in his Messiah. What is Psalm 22 all about? What is the heart? What is the spirit? What is the song of Psalm 22? Verse 4, David identifies God as one, the one who sits enthroned upon the praises of Israel the praises of Israel. We know who Israel praises and we know who Israel doesn't praise. So we know who David sees as God and he turns to God and he tells him, it is a new God that our fathers have trusted. And he describes how this trust brought salvation. We were not shamed. So again, David is looking at the trust of his ancestors as an ideal, as a goal, as something beautiful that he himself aspires to. And he goes on describing his own suffering and towards the end of the psalm, David speaks of his salvation and he describes it as God having answered the prayer of the poor. The poor is, is the one who has nothing and, and just his trust in God and that trust is vindicated. This psalm is a psalm which exalts, which elevates, which shows the beauty and the completeness and the sufficiency of the trust that Israel, David's ancestors, had in God and in God alone. 
And Dr. Brown wants to turn this psalm into a song about the inadequacy of Israel's trust in God because it's not supplemented with trust in his Messiah. This is like taking the Declaration of Independence and turning it into the Communist Manifesto. It's like taking a song about love and loyalty and turning it into a song of hate and treachery. Dr. Brown's narrative violates the very heart of our scripture. In my narrative, I shared the Jewish perspective. The Jewish people see the Messiah as a king of the Jewish people. As such, he is to lead the Jewish people to their destiny to be a blessing to all the nations. The Messiah is supposed to validate the message of the Jewish people. The Messiah sits on the throne of David, and as such, he is supposed to continue and uphold the legacy of David. Interestingly, Dr. Brown did not dispute my understanding of Scripture concerning these foundational truths. Dr. Brown agrees that the Messiah is king of the Jews, is supposed to validate the message of the Jewish people. Dr. Brown agrees that the Messiah sits on the throne of David and as such is supposed to uphold and continue the legacy of King David. However, there are three areas of, doc- of disagreement between myself and Dr. Brown. The first area of disagreement isn't even directly related to our discussion. I mentioned in passing that even when we're in exile, we still fulfill in a minor way our role to, uh, in God's plan to bring blessing to the nations of the earth. Because we are a priestly nation. As a priestly nation, we are the guardian, guardians of God's truth and we carry God's message. We carry that message of trust in the one God who is the father of all humanity. And individuals amongst the nations and to some degree nations have heard our message, have been inspired and moved to, towards a, a better relationship with God. And in that way we have brought blessing to the nations. Now Dr. Brown, in response to what I have said, he said that he quoted scripture after scripture which describes Israel's sin, Israel's rebelliousness, the behavior of Israel has profaned God's name, and therefore Dr. Brown concludes that the people of Israel cannot be a blessing to the nations, and instead he tells us that it's his Messiah that brings blessing to the nations. Now, I I didn't say a word about the behavior of Israel bringing blessing to the nations. I spoke about the message of Israel bringing blessing to the nations. So whatever Dr. Brown said is completely unrelated to the point I was making. But since Dr. Brown brought the concept of behavior on the table, I would like to understand what he is talking about. Fact of the matter is, is that wherever the Jewish people went, just like Joseph, our ancestor, despite being accused of the most vile crimes, still, wherever we went, we elevated the level of the economy the justice system, education, philanthropy, medicine, innovation. We championed the rights of the individual. We championed the respect for human life wherever we went. And in that sense, we were a blessing to the nations that we inhabited. John Adams, the second president of the United States, said that no nation has done more to civilize mankind than the Jewish people. Perhaps you want to understand that as a generous exaggeration. Perhaps, but let's contrast that with the impact of Dr. Brown's Messiah. The foundational text of Christianity, the text from which Dr. Brown draws his narrative, tell us that Dr. Brown's Messiah slandered the Jewish people. He called them liars, murderers, hypocrites, enemies of God, children of the devil. Dr. Brown's Messiah tells the world that the Jewish religion is arrogant, 
it's cruel, it's legalistic, and it's hypocritical. These murderous lies were taught by the most honored names in the church. The followers of Dr. Brown's Messiah were fed these lies together with their mother's milk. And the result of this were centuries upon dark centuries of persecution, of degradation, of murder, of massacre, and of genocide. This is the tragic history of the Jewish people in the Western world. And as tragic as the history of the Jewish people was, a far deeper tragedy wasn't so much the people, the victims of these persecutions, of these massacres. The far deeper tragedy was the fact that so many good people were drawn in to become murderers and, and persecutors. Again, there were many holy and just and righteous Gentiles throughout history that stood up for the Jews. But sadly, there were many, many Gentiles who were persuaded to murder by the words that are recorded in the Christian scriptures, the words, the lies that the Christian scriptures record uh, against the Jewish people. This was the instigation for so much persecution. And I ask, where is this blessing that Dr. Brown is talking about? The second area of disagreement between myself and Dr. Brown has to do with the content of Israel's message. Dr. Brown agrees that the Messiah is the King of the Jews, and as such, he's supposed to lead the Jewish people to their destiny to be a blessing to the nations. As King of the Jews, the Messiah is supposed to validate the message of the Jewish people. But Dr. Brown makes the outrageous claim that the Christian Messiah validates the message of the Jewish people. For 2,000 years, the Jewish people have been forcefully declaring that the message of the church is not our message. With their very lifeblood, our ancestors testified that the worship that the church is demanding is idolatry, the deepest violation of the covenant that we share with God. And here we have Dr. Brown nonchalantly telling his audience that the message of the Christian Messiah is the message of the Jewish people. In essence, Dr. Brown is telling us Ignore what the Jewish people say. Don't listen to the Jewish people. He, the Christian missionary, will tell us what the Jewish people ought to be saying. This behavior is not new. The Christian scriptures, the foundational texts of the church, speak not only on behalf of the church to tell the world about the beliefs of the church, but they speak on behalf of the Jew. They tell the world why it is that the Jew rejects the Christian Messiah. They tell the world the Jew rejects the Christian Messiah not because he loves God, not because he believes that every iota of worship, devotion, and trust belong with God and with God alone, but because he's a child of darkness, because he loves lies. But despite all of the efforts of the church to silence the Jewish people and to try to make sure that the voice is not heard, God preserved us and we are here and we are alive and well. And if you believe what God says in Psalm 78, that he established testimony in Jacob, you go to Jacob to hear that testimony, not to the opponents of Jacob. If you believe what Isaiah wrote in chapter 43, that the Jewish people are God's witnesses, then if you want to hear God's message, you go to the Jewish people, not to the people who would rather have the Jewish people silenced. So that was the second area of disagreement between my narrative and Dr. Brown. The third area of this agreement has to do with the legacy of King David. Again, Dr. Brown agrees that 
the Messiah sits on the throne of David, as such is supposed to uphold and continue the legacy of David. Furthermore, Dr. Brown agrees with me that if we want to understand what King David stands for, we should read the book of Psalms. But Dr. Brown tells us that the book of Psalms point to his narrative to the Christian Messiah. Now, the book of Psalms is the book that guided the Jewish people through the dark years of the Jewish people living under the shadow of the church. The book of Psalms will give the Jewish people the strength and the fortitude to withstand all of those persecutions. And it's this book that Dr. Brown is pointing to and telling us that it supports his narrative. Well, Dr. Brown says that we have forgotten to look at Psalm 110 and Psalm 22. Okay, we forgot to look at Psalm 110. Which verse in Psalm 110 did we forget to look at? Was it perhaps verse 3, which describes how the Jewish people gladly follow their king? Oh no. According to the Christian narrative, the Jewish people are supposed to reject their king. So it's not verse 3 of Psalm 110 that we have forgotten. Perhaps it's verse 5 and 6, which describe how the enemies of Israel are destroyed. But again, that doesn't fit the Christian narrative either. According to Dr. Brown, the destruction of Israel's enemies is not part of the blessing to the nations that the Messiah is supposed to bring. So which part of Psalm 110 did we forget? Dr. Brown is talking about one word in Psalm 110. It's the word priest, which he invests, he invests with, his, with an entire Christological construct. Vicarious atonement. The scriptures clearly tell us that the priest's role is to be a guardian of God's truth. The, the scriptures clearly indicate that David, the Messiah, the Davidic dynasty are guardians of God's truth. The nation of Israel is called a priestly nation because they are guardians of God's truth. So we have a clear understanding, a scriptural, a scriptural understanding of that word priest. It is Dr. Brown who has forgotten what the psalmist took the pains to articulate clearly and explicitly. We did not forget Psalm 110. Dr. Brown points to Psalm 22 to support the Christian narrative. Okay, let's take a look at Psalm 22. And again, according to the Christian narrative, it's the salvation of the Messiah, the Gentiles, and then the Jews. And Psalm 110 opens up with the suffering individual, the salvation of the suffering individual, and it ends with the Gentiles. So Dr. Brown says, here we have it. We have the Christian narrative. But did Dr. Brown really read Psalm 22? Psalm 22 opens with the suffering of an individual. The individual is saved. But it's not, the Israel is not cut out of the Messianic role, as Dr. Brown would have us believe. In fact, Psalm 22 gives us four verses from 23, 24, 25, 26, and 27. Five verses that speak about Israel coming to serve God. And only after that do we move in verse 28 and 29 to the Gentiles joining Israel in serving God. Psalm 22 supports the Jewish narrative, which has it, David, the individual of Psalm 22, the suffering individual of Psalm 22, his salvation, that message absorbed by the Jewish people, and only then coming to the Gentiles. Psalm 22 is supplemented by Psalm 69. Both of them speak about a suffering individual. And Psalm 69, like Psalm 22, affirms this sequence. It's the suffering individual, and Psalm 69 tells us that the nations come to know God because Zion, Israel, is saved. Furthermore, verse 6 in Psalm 69 tells us that this suffering individual is not sinless. This 
he admits his sins before God. So there goes the Christian narrative. The Christian narrative has the suffering servant as a perfectly sinless individual. Psalm 69 and Psalm 22 are not talking about the sinless individual. They're talking about the human king of Israel, David, who inspires Israel with his own experience. Israel absorbs the lesson of David to put their trust in God and in God alone. And that ultimately is, brings about the salvation of all mankind. That was the third area of disagreement between myself and Dr. Brown. This was a debate about the real Jewish Messiah. The purpose of this debate was to bring the biblical truths about the Messiah to light. What does the Bible teach us about the personality of the Messiah? The most important word that the Bible tells us about the Messiah is the word David. The scriptures call the Messiah by the name David six times. In the book of Hosea, chapter 3, verse 5, when the prophet speaks about yearning for the Messiah, he describes Israel as yearning for their king, David. And everyone agrees that if you want to understand the Messiah, we're supposed to read the Psalms because David is the most open heart in all of scriptures. His heart is right there for all of us to read in the 150 Psalms of his beautiful book. And if we read the book of Psalms, we see the personality of the Messiah because the Messiah is just a greater David. David's target audience was primarily the Jewish people. The Messiah will take that same song and make it international. He will take that same song of David, he will amplify it, he will make it resonate in the hearts of all of humanity, of every human being that walks the face of this planet. So let's look into the Psalms. But we're not going to be reading the Psalms as a Christian, as the church would have us read the Psalms, looking for a word here, for a verse there, for a gap there to fill in with a Christian theology. Rather, we will read the book of Psalms the way the book of Psalms is supposed to be read, with our hearts open to David's heart, with our hearts open to the song that emanates from the book of Psalms. And if we read the book of Psalms, Psalms we see a king that leads by setting an example of emphasizing his, setting an example of his humility before God, emphasizing his helplessness, his complete helplessness before God, his total dependence on God, not his alleged superiority over other people. When we read the book of Psalms, we see a leader who recognizes that every breath of air that God grants him is an expression of God's love for him. And he encourages us, he encourages his readers to see our existence, every breath of air, every facet of our existence as an expression of God's love. The writer of the book of Psalms, King David, brings every fear, every worry, every problem, and every sin directly to God. And he encourages his readers to do the very same. Bring everything to God. Every bit of worship, every bit of devotion of your heart belongs to the God who created your heart and to no one else. That is the underlying message of all of the Psalms. The writer of the book of Psalms, King David, directs all of, it, all of his audience's attention to God. He doesn't divert an iota of the devotion, of the worship that's coming to God towards himself. And finally, the author of the book of Psalms doesn't stand in front of humanity, emphasizing the differences between him and other human beings. Rather, the author of the book of Psalms sings the praises of God, and he calls all of humanity to join him in singing those praises. Just read Psalm 148. Psalm 148 is 
already a little bit of a hint of the Messianic age. It's where David is singing and encouraging all of creation to join him in singing the praises of God. All the nations of the world are encouraged to join him. The Messiah is not someone who will stand in front of humanity diverting attention to himself and away from God. Rather, the Messiah is a king who will lead by standing shoulder to shoulder with humanity, singing to God, making that song resonate in the heart of every human being, and he'll call on every human being, and he'll call on all of creation to join him in singing the praises of God. This is now the third and final video in my three-part interaction with Rabbi Blumenthal, and here I'll be responding to his rebuttal. Now, I want to encourage you, if you've watched his rebuttal, go back and look at my opening presentation again, because I think you'll see that he failed to rebut my points in quite a few significant ways. Before I get into this, though, let me speak to you candidly. If you're watching and you're a follower of Jesus, Yeshua, I imagine your faith has been fortified through this interaction. But if you're watching as a traditional Jew, I imagine that your sympathies are automatically with Rabbi Blumenthal, that he makes a point, you agree with it, and perhaps you don't even think it through critically. Perhaps you don't wonder, could the rabbi be right here or not? So can I encourage you that there's not a lot of intellectual or spiritual integrity for doing that? That's why we tell people, watch both sides of the debate. And can I ask you to pray a prayer, to stop and say, God, show me the truth about the Messiah, and I'll follow you and your truth wherever it leads. Is that too much to ask? Okay, I want to show you that Rabbi Blumenthal failed to rebut my key points. He has deflected from the central debate topic and inserted new issues into the debate. And he's admitted that I was correct on a number of key points, although he hardly says that I was right. So let me give a brief review of what failed in his rebuttal. I presented a mountain of scriptural evidence that Jesus Yeshua was the Messiah. He only tried to rebut a small part, and he failed at that. I presented scriptural arguments that the Messiah had to come before the second temple was destroyed. He didn't even try to rebut, not even a syllable offered in rebuttal. He admitted explicitly in his rebuttal that the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 could not be national Israel. He failed to tell you that I gave the arguments why it couldn't be national Israel. And then he failed to tell you that by saying it's the remnant of Israel that Isaiah 53 refers to, he failed to tell you that the same arguments I raised against national Israel work against the righteous remnant as well. He claims that the concepts of Isaiah 53, that the scriptures indicate they're hard to understand and hard to grasp, and yet somehow says the Jewish people have it right, even though they're hard to grasp. And he quotes scripture out of context, which I'll show you, to give a, a, a false impression. He falsely claims that I tried to fill in the gaps in the scriptural narrative. Instead, when I presented systematic scriptural argument, and he also admits that the Messiah is a priestly king, but fails to realize what priests do in the most fundamental way. Now, he makes this misleading claim first. He says, Dr. Brown is telling us that our love for God is inadequate and our trust in God is misplaced. Actually, I never said those words in my presentation, and his rebuttal is supposed to be responding to my presentation, not other things that he surmises about my theology or larger issues between traditional Judaism and Messianic Judaism. No, he is supposed to respond to my presentation on the real Jewish Messiah, and that's what I presented scriptural evidence about. So on what basis then does he turn around and say, Dr. Brown is telling us that our, our love for God is inadequate, that our trust in God is misplaced? I never said that. 
What if I got into a, a critique of the oral law in my rebuttal, and then I said that, that Rabbi Blumenthal is saying, if I don't believe in the oral law, I'm not an authentic Jew. He could turn around and say, well, that's got nothing to do with our debate about the real Jewish Messiah. Exactly. Neither does his point. But, but here's what happened. I never mentioned a Jewish person's love for God. I'm not judging your individual love for God or not. That's between you and God. I'm simply saying who the Messiah is and what we should do about it. But here's, here's the issue. Rabbi Blumenthal is pushing a particular button in the heart and mind of a traditional Jew. So when you hear that, you automatically hear this attack and get defensive, and, and now we deflect from the argument. And this is his strategy to do that because he takes the time to raise an argument to rebut something I never even discussed, and he fails to rebut most of the scriptures I presented. In fact, when you get to the end of his rebuttal, you find out he didn't even try to rebut much of what I presented. It was a strategy on his part. He said this, the God that we encountered through the Exodus experience and the Sinai revelation is the only one that humanity needs to turn to. Every cause for trust, every reason for love and for worship resides with him and with him alone. On the one hand, yeah, I, I fully affirm this. And again, it's Rabbi Blumenthal is turning your attention away from the real issue, namely the identity of the Messiah. But let me be more specific. I believe in the God of the Exodus and Mount Sinai. And I can show you through our own scriptures, through our own revelation, that he's complex in his unity. And second, he alone is the Savior. And he saves us through his son, the Messiah. All my faith is in this one God alone. My loyalties are 100% undivided. And all my belief in the Messiah is in the belief in the God of the Messiah. There's no division there. Uh, unfortunately, once again, Rabbi Blumenthal is misleading you here. He, he's presenting a false dichotomy. Let me explain. If you're a traditional Jew, do you not express faith in the coming of the Messiah every day? Does that mean you're not putting your faith in God? No. It means that you're putting your faith in God to do what he promised to do through the Messiah. That's exactly what I believe. And, and, and in your view, when the Messiah comes and sets up his glorious kingdom on the earth, won't your, your love and adoration for God's goodness be enhanced? Isn't that a good thing? If I applied Rabbi Blumenthal's double standards here, I could challenge every traditional Jew and say, why don't you trust God? Why do you trust in the sages and the great rabbis? A traditional Jew would answer, through the sages, my trust in God is deepened. Well, all the more is it wrong to claim that by re recognizing that Yeshua as the Messiah, you will not be trusting in God. No, your faith in God will be deepened and enhanced. Rabbi Blumenthal claims that, quote, the scriptures tell us that it is precisely through the vindication of Israel's trust in God that the nations will come to know God. Well, I actually alluded to this in my opening presentation, but what Rabbi Blumenthal omitted here is that our pattern through history has been disobedience, emphasize that in my opening presentation and in my rebuttal, even rejecting our Messiah when he came. At the end of the age, when we recognize our guilt in rejecting Messiah and turn back to him, that's when our trust in God is vindicated and the nations are fully blessed. So as per his pattern from the very first video, Rabbi Blumenthal puts his faith in the people of Israel. He says explicitly, Israel's trust in God will be vindicated. I say that God will be ultimately vindicated and I put my faith in God and his Messiah. And when we turn to him in repentance, recognizing our sin and rejecting him, as prophesied in Zechariah 12 and Isaiah 53, then we'll be redeemed and the nations will be blessed. Rabbi Blumenthal claims that, quote, there is no explicit passage in scripture that declares that we need to trust in the vicarious atonement of anyone in order to be accepted by God. 
And he accuses me of, quote, pointing to gaps in the scriptural narrative and then weaving a multi-stepped interpretation to fill in those gaps. This again, friends, is a debating distraction. I pointed to no gaps. I simply read verse after verse, in one case, as developed by the same author, Isaiah, over more than a dozen chapters, and then I looked for those same key themes in the rest of the Tanakh. How can you call that pointing to gaps? As for the importance accepting the vicarious atonement that was made for us, why does Isaiah ask in Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If this is so unimportant, why ask the question? And why take so many verses to paint the picture of the Messiah's vicarious death for our sins and of our misunderstanding of his death if it wasn't important? And why start the passage in Isaiah 52, 13 with the words, Behold, my servant will act wisely, will be exalted and high and lifted up if it wasn't important to focus on his work. And why does Zechariah tell us in chapter 12 of his book that we'll be weeping in repentance over the one we pierced if it's not important? And why is it only then, not before then, that a fountain will be opened for our cleansing after our repentance when we turn back to the Messiah, according to Isaiah, excuse me, Zechariah 13, 1. And why do we have a whole system of blood sacrifices and blood atonement and priestly mediation if God was not pointing to something more, especially when we've been unable to follow those laws for the last 2,000 years? Could it be that they're fulfilled in God's atoning work in the Messiah that everything Tanakh is pointing to finds fulfillment in him? Not also Deuteronomy 18, God promised to raise up a prophet like Moses and we were to listen to him. Yet at the end of Deuteronomy 34, it says no prophet like Moses was raised up. So there may have been a prophet in each generation, but none like Moses. God said he'd raise one up like Moses. We had to listen to him or we'd be cut off. Yeshua, the Messiah, the last great prophet comes and declares the message of God to us. Are we not required to believe that? Uh, let me explain it like this. If I say to you, where in the Torah did it tell us to light the Sabbath candles? You'd say the Torah tells us to listen to our leaders and they commanded us to light the candles. Now, I differ with that interpretation, but what I'm telling you with this is this. The whole foundation for vicarious atonement is laid out throughout the Tanakh, pointing us to the Messiah. When he came, also as God's final prophet, he further explained it to us. So why, pray tell, you want to reject his words? It's because these teachings are so central to humanity that God laid out for us when the Messiah had to come again. It was before the second temple was destroyed and that he would die for our sins and rise from the dead. Then for a three-year period, the Messiah demonstrated God's power through unprecedented signs, wonders, and miracles done in the sight of the nation. Then he died for our sins. And he rose from the dead, afterwards seen by 500 witnesses. Then he ascended to heaven and he sent the Spirit on Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, in the sight of the whole nation. So how much clearer do you want to make it? God is speaking to us as a people. Uh, I demonstrated in my opening presentation, in accordance with the scriptures, that our nation rejected him, the Messiah, but he has become a light to the nation so that God's salvation has gone to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49. When we receive him as a nation at the end of the age, we will see the fulfillment of the rest of the promises God gave to us. Speaking of Isaiah 53, Rabbi Blumenthal says this. Dr. Brown argues that the prophet is speaking of a servant who is perfectly sinless, sinless to the degree that he is above human. And in this way, the prophet informs us of the identity of the servant. 
Actually, I didn't say that. Rabbi Blumenthal has put words in my mouth in order to refute them. Why do that? Why don't I just deal with what I say? It's because the text is against him. I said that the servant of the Lord in Isaiah is a righteous, guiltless sufferer. I didn't say anything that had to be divine because of that. And according to Isaiah 53, while we were guilty in God's sight, he was righteous without guile or violence. Read the text yourself. It's all there. Why fight against it? He claims that to call the servant righteous doesn't mean that it's without sin. Pointing to Isaiah 26, 2, where Israel is called a goit sadiq, a righteous nation. But once again, Rabbi Blumenthal has misled you. Since the picture of Isaiah 26 is looking forward to the time of our redemption in the Messianic kingdom. Of course, we'll be, of course we'll be righteous at that point. But Israel is not righteous in Isaiah 53. And what's interesting is that Rabbi Blumenthal keeps hammering the point that the servant is not perfectly sinless. Of course, those are his specific words, not mine. But can I ask you, where does it say the servant has sinned? And since he's called righteous, since he makes others righteous, since he's without guile or violence, and since he offers his soul as an asham, a guilt offering, sacrifices had to be without blemish, why should we think he wasn't sinless? Significantly, Rabbi Blumenthal admits that the servant, quote, is not all of Israel, but those amongst Israel who are worthy of being called God's servant, those who put their trust in God. Well, how does he know this? He's told us elsewhere in Isaiah that the servant is the nation as a whole, and now suddenly it just becomes part of the nation. Since the language is explicitly individual, why not understand it as one individual within the nation, namely the Messiah? As for the idea that Isaiah 53 refers to the righteous remnant, that interpretation does not work. Since Israel's suffering in the nations did not bring healing to those nations, even the righteous remnant, it brought guilt because of which God judged them. Once again, I demonstrated in the opening presentation, Isaiah 53 cannot possibly apply to the nation of Israel, which was guilty in God's sight and exiled because of sin, bringing profanation to God's name, nor can it apply to the righteous remnant, since their suffering in the nations brought judgment on the nations, not healing and redemption. It can only refer to the Messiah, and I urge you to have the courage to follow him. Rabbi Blumenthal acknowledges that I used, quote, a solid interpretive method when I pointed out that the focus moves from national to individual in Isaiah 40 to 53, although he misleadingly claims that my point is that God has, quote, shifted his focus from Israel, which was the center of attention in the earlier chapters, and he's directing our attention elsewhere. No, not at all. God is focusing our attention on the very heart and soul of Israel, on the greatest individual among us, our Messiah. Again, I ask, why does Rabbi Blumenthal mislead you rather than deal forthrightly with my arguments and with the text? He claims that, quote, Christians cannot dispute the national interpretation of Isaiah on textual grounds. They object to the national interpretation on theological grounds. Of course, he can't deny that it refers to the Messiah on textual grounds. But he just admitted that the national interpretation doesn't work and the text can only refer to a righteous remnant. He's arguing against himself. As for the notion that there's no textual argument against his position, what do you call hundreds of verses in our Bible that declare we were suffering for our own skins, sins and scattered under God's curse? I would call that textual. And that mountain of textual evidence is theological. Rabbi Blumenthal's problem was with the God of Sinai, not with me. Please go back and look up the references I cited in my opening presentation. They make totally clear that the servant can neither be Israel nor the righteous remnant of Israel. The subject must be the Messiah. And I remind you that he is one of us. 
Rabbi Blumenthal claims that, quote, there is no textual or theological advantage in Dr. Brown's interpretation. Well, forget my interpretation. How about just following God's truth? I would say there is a massive advantage in doing that. Remarkably, and please feel the weight of these words. Rabbi Blumenthal says that, quote, the prophet is telling us that we will actually not understand the theology of the suffering of the servant until the servants actually exalt it, which didn't happen yet. So he says, I think it's unwise to base your whole theological construct that the prophet's telling us we will not so easily understand. Did you get that? He says the prophet tells us we won't understand Isaiah 53, which is the very thing I've been trying to say that the Jewish people have not understood it. That, that Israel has got it wrong, just as the text says, yet somehow he contradicts himself by saying Israel now has the right understanding. He says the text won't be understood until the end of the age, yet when I say that Israel is misunderstanding the text now, he rebuts me. He can't have it both ways. He admits that it's hard to understand after telling us the text is crystal clear. He admits that the servant cannot be Israel as a whole. And then despite our agreement to confine our comments to 20 minutes each on the video, he, he cannot even find the time to explain one of the central points of the debate, namely the meaning of Isaiah 53, which I've explained numerous times over. Instead, he says, I'll explain that somewhere else. Put another way, what he's saying is this. The fact that Isaiah 53 speaks of a righteous individual suffering for the sins of his people is so overwhelmingly clear that it will take me a lot more time to undermine that truth. That's what he's basically saying. He might just as well say, Dr. Brown is right, and I'm not able to rebut him in the time frame we agreed to. Here's the most amazing thing of all. This is exactly what Isaiah told us would happen. When we saw a Messiah suffering for our sins, we would think he was suffering for his own sins. It's right there in our Bible, and I presented the evidence in detail in my opening presentation. And now, 40 minutes later, Rabbi Blumenthal still hasn't explained the meaning of this critically important passage. Why? Then, with less than two minutes to go in his presentation, he backhandedly responds to another central argument that I brought from the beginning of my opening presentation, namely, that the Messiah was a priestly king. Remember, this was the explicit testimony of Jeremiah and Zechariah the former twice identifying the Messiah as the branch and the latter identifying the branch as a priest sitting on a throne. This was also the explicit testimony of Psalm 110, one of the most important messianic prophecies and one that Rabbi Blumenthal totally omitted in his opening presentation as well as from his video rebuttal. Why? In 40 minutes discussing the real Jewish Messiah, he omits one of the key texts that the author of scripture, our God, has given us. Why? He says, quote, Dr. Brown told us that the Jewish people do not accept the priestly role of the Messiah. After all, he says, the Messiah is the king of Israel and Israel is a priestly nation. But how are we to be a priestly nation? How is the Messiah to be a priestly king? The priests are the repositories of God's truth. But the primary role of the priest was to offer sacrifices and make intercession for Israel, which is exactly what the servant of the Lord does in Isaiah 53, with the text using priestly language throughout the passage. And note that he offers, again, his own life as an asham, a guilt offering, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. This is what our Bible tells us. Of course, Israel's Messiah is also a repository of truth, which is why Isaiah tells us that the nations will seek his teaching. Isaiah 42.4, they'll seek his Torah, which is why hundreds of millions of Gentiles now worship the God of Israel. Is this not also priestly work? But to repeat, 
One of my central arguments from the opening lines of my first presentation was that the Messiah was a priestly king. Rabbi Blumenthal devotes less than two minutes to explaining this concept, which he affirms to be true, but totally failing to explain its significance. As for the central passage I opened up in the prophets, namely Isaiah 53, he also failed to explain the meaning of that as well. What does that tell you then in terms of our debate? Rabbi Blumenthal closes his video arguing that Israel's message is that we must put our trust in God alone, but that in fact is our Messiah's message. All trust in him is trust in God since God alone is our savior. Let me urge you, friend, not to look to your own righteousness or your own learning or even your own faith for salvation. Look to the Lord and the Savior He has sent, Yeshua, our Messiah, our own flesh and blood, who can relate to our suffering and exile and pain and put your trust in the God of Israel alone. I am not here to give you a rebuttal to Dr. Brown's third presentation. I will be doing that on my blog entitled A Thousand Verses. I will be doing it in writing. You can find my rebuttal over there. What I want to share with you now are two observations about the general dynamic of the debate. Observation number one, the context and the history of this debate goes back quite a while. Between the years 2000 and 2010, Dr. Brown authored his five-volume series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. I critiqued that series in a series of writings of my own, Contra Brown, the elephant in the suit, supplement the Contra Brown. When challenged to respond to my critique, Dr. Brown's primary response was a counter-challenge to engage me in a live debate. I never understood that response because if Dr. Brown had answers to my critique, concise and cogent answers, he would share them in writing, he would share them in a video presentation. Why does he need to wait for the format, the venue of a live debate to share his answers? But in order to meet Dr. Brown on his own terms, we had this debate, which is sort of a compromise between the debate that I wanted, the written give and take, and the live debate that Dr. Brown wanted. Now that you have seen Dr. Brown's three presentations, what new arguments did he bring to the table? None. There are no substantive new arguments that he brought to the table. The substance of his arguments are all present in his five volumes. The only new arguments that he brought to the table relate to his critique of my handling of the debate. He believes I violated the terms of the debate, the spirit of the debate. I didn't answer all of the questions in the time allotted to me. I didn't answer the questions, spend enough time answering the questions that I did answer. All of these answers don't work in the context of writing substance. They only work in the format of a live debate. So my observation is that this debate revealed that Dr. Brown's challenge to a live debate is simply a smokescreen to hide the fact that he has no answers to my critique of his five volumes. The second observation is the dynamic of the debate itself. You see, Dr. Brown seems to be under the impression, and this, I, I don't believe this was a debating tactic on his part. He seemed to be pretty sincere about this. Dr. Brown was upset that I spoke about vindicating Israel's trust in God, the adequacy of Israel's trust in God. He felt it was a debating tactic on my part. What that showed me is that Dr. Brown's view 
of the Jewish Messiah is as follows, is that there's his view, Jesus, and he understands the Jewish view, those who don't agree with him, as the simply uh, uh, the inverse of his, his, of his understanding. In other words, he believes in Jesus and he understands that we reject Jesus. So he, he expects the debate all, to be all about the arguments pro and con Jesus. He doesn't seem to understand that there is a completely different picture of the Messiah. It's not just that we, are, we don't accept the arguments for Jesus. Yes, that's true. We don't accept the arguments for Jesus. But that's not about the real Jewish Messiah. We have a positive view about what the Jewish Messiah is supposed to accomplish and what he's supposed to do. And there are many verses and many chapters in Scripture which express our understanding of the Jewish Messiah, which have nothing to do with Jesus. And when we express our view about the Messiah, then when we look at the Christian claims, we see it clashes with our understanding at which area? At the point of trusting in God, because the real Jewish Messiah is all about vindicating Israel's trust in God. Just to, to bring out this point a little bit further is the subject of vindicating Israel's trust in God, according to Dr. Brown, doesn't really belong in the debate about the Messiah. So what does belong in the debate, according to Dr. Brown? The subject of vicarious atonement. How did vicarious atonement get into the debate? Well, David is, everyone understands, a representative of the Messiah. He's a prototype of the Messiah. And David is associated with priesthood. David is actually called a priest in Psalm 110. And priesthood is associated with atonement. And atonement is associated with vicarious atonement. These are stretches, connecting dots, to bring David to vicarious atonement, to connect the word David, the name David, the King David, to the concept of vicarious atonement. But which concept is more associated with King David than the concept of trust in God, vindicating Israel's trust in God? In Psalm 69, verse 7, David appeals to God, and he turns to God, and he says, let those who hope to you, God, not be shamed through me. In other words, God's, David sees people's trust in God as something that it's his mission to vindicate and to validate, and he feels inadequate. He needs God's help to perform that task, that mission of vindicating trust in God is something that David sees as larger than himself. If you were to be looking for a biography of King David, what title would you expect? Would you expect a title, Vicarious Atonement, or Vindicating, Validating Trust in God? It's obvious. Trust in God is all about, that's King David's life. That's the biography of King David. Vicarious Atonement is something completely peripheral. It's not even related to King David unless you go work with the Christian imagination. So the fact that Dr. Brown sees validating trust in God as something foreign to discussion about the Messiah tells us that his understanding of the Messiah is light years away from the Jewish scriptures teaching about the Messiah. 